I've noticed a number of peculiar incidents among the members of the student body, all having to do with rock and roll music. You don't think this song is the greatest song ever? I will fight you. No work in Van Morrison's canon, or in the rock lexicon for that matter, sounds quite like Astral Weeks. I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. Today we celebrate the 45th anniversary of Astral Weeks, and I'll remember rock legend Lou Reed in the Desert Island Jukebox. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions. Yeah, I'm losing my edge. I'm losing my edge. The kids are coming up from behind. That's a track from LCD Sound System's 2005 debut album in which singer-producer James Murphy says he's losing his edge. Well, two years after the project disbanded, is this the case? Murphy's gone from punk and dance clubs to Broadway? (laughs) He's composed original music for the Broadway revival of the Harold Pinter play Betrayal. But if you're going to lose your edge, that's not a bad way to go. The play stars Daniel Craig and Rachel Weisz, is produced by Scott Rudin, and is directed by Mike Nichols. Let's find out how this all came together. James, welcome back to Sound Opinions. Well, thank you very much. So, Harold Pinter and Betrayal, did you have yes. any knowledge at all of this play before you got the job to score it? Um, I read the play, I think, probably in like 1992, but I totally forgot about it. But I knew Pinter, of course, and I got to reread it and, and get very excited about it. So did you have to reread it and get excited about it before you accepted the job, or was it something that, I'm going to try this, going on blind faith? No, I got the book, I got the the play in book form before I ever had a meeting about it. It was an in-person thing. Like, it kind of came out of um, Scott Rudin being like, here's this, do you want to do this? Scott Rudin, a producer, uh, yes. who, who apparently hooked you up with the director of the play, Mike Nichols, right? Yes, He's an up-and-coming director who I think is going to do big things. <laughs> He's got a future. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. What was that meeting like uh, where you get to sit down with the guy behind The Graduate and so many other great things? What's the first meeting like, James? There is a certain type of very high-performing person who is not difficult to deal with, who's not egotistical, but is instead just like really gracious and pleasant and Mike is not no. Of course, he's that's exactly the kind of guy he is. He's just a really friendly, dis- charming, disarming person. So really fun to hang out with. Well, and, and the so I was like, you know, I'd come home to you know, like, oh, I just you know, hung out with Mike and <laughs> just you know, me and Mike, we were just talking about opera, you know. And, and the play's got two high level stars, you know, Daniel Craig and and Rachel Weisz, like serious actors, actresses. Did you get to meet them too, or or do they not let you come around anymore now that you've done the music? No, no, no. I'm still working. You know, I'm always working. I met them um, very early on during rehearsals. I mean, that's what, kind of what I did. I came and sat in on a a run-through. It's all been very old-fashioned. Like, I went and sat with Mike, and we talked about direction, and we talked about opera and classical music, and I nodded a lot and wrote things down and went back and listened to things. Um, 
And then I went and watched the play and took notes on the script. You know, basically, what would I want to hear here? How long would it take for them to change the scenery and stuff like that? Did the play, did the emotions expressed in the play, did some of the themes inform the music? I mean, explain exactly the type of music that you're composing here and how it is used in the actual play. Well, I I don't, I guess I'm not that um, deliberate or linear. For me, it was more. Mike and I had a lot, a lot of Mike and I, you know, and Mike, uh, Mike and I had a lot of conversations. Mr. Nichols and I had a lot of conversations about um, what was going on in the play and what he didn't like about, you know, the way the play has been done before and what he wanted the play to do, and um, you know, just talking about the emotion of like these these characters and how they loved each other and how this is how the tragedy works and how some t- it can be interpreted these five different ways and you know, so it, it wasn't like me going, oh, okay, then I'll just do this very logical intellectual thing. It was more me watching the play and then taking quick notes of like what I would hear. And then I, you know, had a couple meetings with him where I was, you know, I, I basically traveled around doing my other jobs and recording, getting little rooms with pianos and working on little motifs. And then we had a meeting where I went and saw the play again, left the meeting and recorded a bunch of cues with the cellist that night and sent them to him. And we that's how we've been working ever since. You have quite a palette to work with here, it sounds like. I mean, it sounds like any instrument uh, you could have wished for, you could have used here. I mean, what what exactly is the lineup of instruments that you ended up using to perform this music? This is going to be a weird answer to, to that question because it's like I had anything. It's piano and cello. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> That's wow. it. That's cool. <laughs> piano and cello. Very spare. Well, James, I know that after the intense run of LCD Sound System, and before that, launching the label and and doing the production, you were looking to do some new stuff. I I read a fascinating article about your your gourmet coffee obsession right now and and doing, you know, uh, the challenge. Mike Nichols says, can can you do music for a play? I mean, they're outside of the wheelhouse that you were operating in, but still, people are going to listen to any new music from James Murphy and say, how does this follow up to LCD Sound System? Greg and I only heard snippets of what you're doing, and it's really kind of cool. It's like if Eno had the pop albums, you know, the four famous ones he made, and then he did the ambient albums, but are we supposed to listen to this at all in that way? To the to people who experience me in any way <laughs> other than my friends, like uh, I am the guy from the LCD Sound System thing, you know, which is totally true. But same thing happened when I did Greenberg. People were like, oh, you're going to make acoustic music now? Is this the idea? And I was like, no, I made the soundtrack for Greenberg based on what the movie needed. For me, these are these beautiful gifts. These are great opportunities that I never would have had without the band. But they are a way of getting outside of my own head and not being existential about what's next for me. Instead, I'm like, oh, great. Well, Noah Baumbach needs some music for this, and I'm going to make it for him. It's for him. And Mike Nichols needs music for this play. I'm going to make music for him. It's not me being like, this is the next step for me. And I love letting go of that thought. All right, well, so we got to ask you, this Arcade Fire record is coming out. How was it working with those guys? It was great. I mean, they're my friends, and it's the kind of thing we've, we've been talking about doing this since Neon Bible. So it's been something we've been wanting to do for a long time, and just to see if we could do it. And it was a nice thing, because we knew each other so well, that if it didn't work, we would both be able to acknowledge that in a non not weird way, and I could just get my pack my bag and go home. Um, but it actually worked better than either one of us thought, I think. 
based uh, James on the two songs I saw them play on SNL and then the half hour special that Roman Coppola directed that followed it seems <laughs> like they came to you for a reason is that true I guess the the easy thing to think is that you know they had some songs and then I showed up and things got funky um <laughs> but the reality <laughs> is is like these the, the songs were in the shapes they were in largely before I got there so maybe that was one of the reasons they called but I think really genuinely they called me because we've been trying to do this forever but once we got working, it just, you know, it was just helping them get their vision across. I mean, they're not, they have no lack of vision. I mean, they win Grammys. They don't just run her up. They, they won it all the last time. And does that put any pressure on you or them knowing that they're following up a, a, a major record and more people than ever are paying attention to them and will pay attention to this record? What they've said is that this was calmer than they've ever been in the studio. So for me, I, I don't know. I mean, for me, I, I don't have to bear, bear that pressure at all. And they didn't seem to really be leaking that pressure. They didn't seem to be stressed out. They're not like, they're not like, I mean, they want to do the best they can. They want to do their best work. I don't think any of them got into this band to be rock stars. I think it's it's a wonderful thing that it's happened that they're quite, that they're really successful. Everybody knows them, but I don't think that was like the goal. I think they could have picked, you know, an easier road. <laughs> So for me, it wasn't really pressure other than just to make them happy on a day-to-day basis. I wanted them to have the best record they could. Lot of, lots of different projects since LCD uh, called it a day. And that seemed like what That's you were aiming point. for yeah. when you talked to us a few years ago about this. You're living the dream, man. But I'm living the dream, yeah. Are you, are you thinking at all at some point in the near or far future of, of something of, of a more permanent nature or more of a long-term nature? I like the way things are going. I mean, I think at some point I'll make another um, record of some sort under some name that's more of like a record uh, just because I'll get bored and feel like it's time. But not yet because I'm having a lot of fun and I'm, you know, I'm able to do a lot of the things that I know are just impossible um, when you're in a band. And all the things I'm doing just require a lot of time. I mean, Mike, Mike Nichols, when we were, we, they started rehearsing a long time ago and he gave me a lot of time to work on the music. And I said, uh, I was like, this is wonderful. I mean, usually when I have to do projects, people expect it to be done tomorrow. And, it's a, you know, it's always a rush. And he's like, well, that's what makes things good, time. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, you don't do good work if you don't have time to do it. Hmm. It's like that's what people forget. You know, that's what genius is. It's just time. It's time. And I, it was really so the most refreshing thing in the world. It's like, right, sitting around, not under an enormous amount of pressure and working on little pieces of piano music is a great way to get good pieces of music. A bad way is for me to be given two days in a panic <laughs> to generate something to make people happy. So, you know, I'm, I'm liking having the time to work on things. Never change, never change, never change, never change. We've been talking to James Murphy on Sound Opinions. The Broadway revival of Betrayal is slated to play through January 5th at the Ethel Barrymore Theater. Thanks, James. Good talking to you. Bye. If I ventured in the slipstream Between the viaducts of your dream Where my world still runs crack and the ditch and the back road stop Could you find me? Or would you kiss my eyes Laying you down Inside
You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that's the opening of Astral Weeks, Van Morrison's landmark 1968 release. This record wasn't quite rock, and it wasn't quite jazz, and 45 years later, it still occupies its own world. So on its anniversary this month, we wanted to revisit our 2009 classic album dissection. We love to do these deep dives because they allow us to go beyond an album's singles and put them into context. Talk about why it was made, how it was made, and why it was so important, and why it remains that way. Astral Weeks was a classic record in its time, although it didn't sell a whole lot of copies and didn't really produce a major hit single. It took 33 years to go gold. Yeah, absolutely, but it was a major landmark work in Morrison's career in a lot of ways, even though he's made a ton of great music since it was released in 1968. I don't think he's ever scale the heights that he did emotionally mm-hmm. uh, with Astral Weeks. There's something very special about this album, and we're going to try to get to the heart of it. Yes. At the time in his career, Morrison was 22 going on 23 years old. He was only 23 when the album was completed, so he's a very young man, but he'd already had a fairly long career in, in music. He was in an Irish garage rock band called Them, most famous for writing the hit Gloria, which was appropriated by a Chicago garage rock yeah. band, of all things, uh, Shadows of Night, which had a top 10 hit with it in the mid-60s. But Morrison was listening to a lot of R&B and blues, of course, uh, as an influence. And then he came across Dylan in the mid-60s and realized, the music I'm doing right now really has nothing to do with what's happening out there. I mean, Dylan is making these amazing abstract records that are diving beyond the Moon June love songs that a lot of other people are writing. I want to write music like that. So he left them, came to the United States, wanted to record solo music, and was looking for an appropriate producer. He had a great deal of respect for this guy, Burt Burns, who had done a lot of great music with people like Solomon Burke, Wilson Pickett, the Drifters, as a staff producer for Atlantic Records. Mm -hmm. Burns was starting his own label. He apparently got Morrison. He understood what Morrison was trying to do. He wanted to make acoustic-flavored music that was more personal in nature, an Irish response to Bob Dylan, if you will. Or at least Morrison thought that Burt Burns got him. But when he showed up to the studio, he was shocked to see all these musicians there and all these instruments. There was three guitars, and there was a drummer, and mm-hmm. there was multiple bass players. And he's going, wait a minute, I don't want to make pop records. Yeah. You know, I want to make these personal records. Out of that session came Van Morrison's biggest hit, ironically, Brown-Eyed Girl. Van Morrison wasn't even around at the finish of that song. He let the other guys in the studio finish it because he was so disgusted with the kind of music he was making. He left that studio session in 1967, moved to Boston, started playing the coffee houses in Boston with a trio, more close to the vision that he was seeking. It was acoustic guitar, it was flute, it was upright bass. This was a strange kind of music. It wasn't really readily accepted then. What was it? Was it rock? Was it jazz? Was it folk? Was it R&B? Was it blues? It was influenced by all of those things, but it really wasn't any one of those things. 
the biggest problem for Van Morrison in 1968 was finding a producer who could make a record that understood what he wanted to do. And he went through these producers one after the other, and they were all going, well, yeah, we can make pop hits with this guy. And Van goes, I don't want to make a pop record. I want to make a record that is not a rock record. I want to make a record that doesn't even have a drummer on it. So he was talking to all of these producers. Finally, he came across a guy who did understand what he wanted, and he was Louis Merenstein. Louis Merenstein was a guy who ended up working with people like Charlie Musselwhite, the Spencer Davis Group, Mama Cass Elliot, the Mamas and Papas, John Cale, Gladys Knight. He was a respected producer, but he also was blown away by Van Morrison. When he heard Van Morrison sing those songs in his office, he goes, I know exactly what I want to do with this guy. And he called up his friend Richard Davis, great, great bass player, out of the jazz scene and said, I've got this session I want you to do, and I want you to hire the best players you can find. Well, Richard Davis was coming out of the jazz world. He didn't know who the heck Van Morrison was. He didn't care about rock music. He understood jazz. But he put together the best lineup of jazz musicians that was available for this session. So Richard Davis on bass, he calls up Jay Berliner, who was playing with the Charlie Mingus band to play guitar. And he calls up a guy named Connie Kay, who was mm-hmm. only in the modern jazz quartet to play drums. So Van said he didn't really want a drummer, but he got Connie Kay, who yeah. was just a, this master drummer, uh, very subtle, uses a lot of brushes. He was the perfect call for this session. I think Berliner is an important name, too, because with Mingus, he had played on Black Saint and The Sinner Lady. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an album that's very similar to the way that Astral Weeks is set up in terms of its ambition and its musical eclecticism. I I really think that that is in jazz what Astral Weeks is in rock. continue our classic album dissection of Van Morrison's 1968 masterpiece Astral Weeks in just a minute here on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later, Greg and I review the chart-topping new album from Lord.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. He's Greg Cott. And we're in the midst of a classic album dissection of Astral Weeks by Van Morrison, which is 45 years old this month. That track's called Ballerina, and it comes towards the end of the album. But Jim, I actually want to return to the beginning, to the lead-off title track. We played a little bit of it in the last segment, but it's important not just because it introduces the record, but it takes you to a place that is unlike any in music at this point. Uh, this is 1968, remember. Nobody was really making records like Van Morrison wanted to make. And uh, the title song, which is the first song that he played for Louis Merenstein when he went to his office and said, this is what I want. And what Merenstein heard was a soul singer, this Irish soul singer with an acoustic guitar, fronting this band of jazz musicians, making this episodic, epic music that was nonlinear in a lot of ways. There weren't, really weren't verses and choruses and bridges in the traditional sense of a pop song. It was more of an ebb and flow. No producer in his right mind at that time was interested in commercial music would have made a record like this. But Louis Merenstein understood what Van Morrison was after, and I think he got it, set the blueprint for the record when he made Astral Weeks. The first thing you hear about this record is that Richard Davis's bass is basically the lead instrument on it. He is setting the tone for the entire record. I think the poetry of the language in the very opening of this track really is just absolutely transcendent, and it takes you to a place that is not of this world. In fact, he talks about being a stranger in this world and going someplace else, this idea of transcendence. So he sets up the themes for the record very well. And what I'm going to play for you is the end of the track. There's no way we're going to be able to play these epic tracks in their entirety here. But this track builds and builds and builds to this crescendo of feeling and then slowly recedes, and literally it's like the trembling of the leaves in a summer breeze at the end, with the, with the fiddles shivering and the bass underneath it all, and Morrison's voice finally descending into a whisper. He says, I want to be reborn. He wants to go to another place, and he's taking us to that place as this album begins. So here it is, the title track from Astral Weeks on Sound Opinions. If I ventured in the slipstream between the fire ducks of your dream Where a mobile steel rims crack And the ditch in the back road stop Could you find me? Would you kiss my eyes And lay me down In silence easy To be To be born again In another world, darling In another world In another time Got a home on high Ain't nothing but a stranger in this world I'm nothing but a stranger in this world I got a home on high In another land So far away So far away 
Weeks by Van Morrison on Sound Opinions. We're talking about the album's significance and influence 45 years after its release. Jim, when you listen to a track like that, you think, man, the chemistry in the studio between this band of musicians and Van Morrison must have been extraordinary. But that really wasn't the reality, was it? There are different stories, Greg. Some of the biographers have said, and uh, actually John Cale, who was recording in the studio next door, said that everything he heard from the Van Morrison Astral Week sessions, which only lasted two days, two days in Mm -hmm. New York City produced the entire album, was that everyone despised Morrison, who (laughs) can be a nasty individual. You famously have seen him take a punch at a band member on stage. Mm -hmm. That the other musicians hated working with him. He laid down acoustic guitar and vocals, and the rest of the band fleshed it out. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know if it matters. It does have this wonderful sense of a group playing together and improvising. And a key part of that is that Morrison improvises with his vocals in the same way that the great jazz flautists and bassists and and Berliner on guitar, the same way that they're improvising. Repetition being a key thing here. Again and again throughout this album, you hear Van seize on a word and drive it home. He uses his voice as a drum or as a rhythm instrument, like the bass. You know, you said that Richard Davis is the lead instrument here as the bassist. That's kind of what Van's doing with his vocal, too. Mm-hmm. To never, never, never wonder why at all. No, 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 no. To never, never wonder why at all. To never, never, never wonder why it's gotta be. The other big thing to think about when you listen to Astral Weeks, well, there's a couple. I mean, one is it's a song cycle. It really is best appreciated as an album. And then there's the spiritual aspect. Again, Van Morrison not being a very cooperative person. Biographies differ. Some people report that he was a Jehovah's Witness. In fact, he wasn't raised in any religious tradition, but his mother did experiment with the Jehovah's Witness religion. He went to some uh, revival meetings. Throughout his life, Van continued to search for something. I have to think that in the end, he found his religion in music itself. Mm -hmm. But he was fascinated with this idea of how does one transcend the everyday? How do you find heaven on earth? In large part, what Astral Weeks is about is you find it in love, Mm -hmm. in true love. Now, he has a lot of definitions of love, and that also includes pain. You know, (laughs) all great religions, you got to suffer to get the reward. I shall drive my chariot down your streets and cry. Well, it's beyond that, and I don't know why. 
So this is an album both of extraordinary joy and deep, deep, dark pain. Absolutely, Jim. I think the, the song I think you're going to play next illustrates that very well. And I think it's important, too, to note the setting for this album. It's a, it's a metaphorical place, but most of these songs are set in his native Belfast in Ireland. And Cypress Avenue, the main drag in Belfast, plays a, an incredible role in these songs. And it's more not a geographical location for him. It's more a state of mind where time and space are really fluid. So he's going back to these childhood memories and these adolescent passions and bringing it up to date with his adult anxieties. But you can see the song sort of morphing in space and time as they go along. From line to line and verse to verse, it's constantly changing. The perspective is changing. But what it is is he's talking, again, as, about this spiritual journey. And when he goes to Cypress Avenue, he's talking about the side of town that he wasn't really allowed on. That was the street of dreams in Belfast. That's where the rich people lived. That's where the pretty girls were. And when you went to Cypress Avenue, you went there as a place of longing. That's where you wanted to be, but you're not there. You're not going to get it. It's just out of reach. And I think the track that you're going to play illustrates that notion of a dream being just out of reach. Well, yeah, I do want to play Cypress Avenue in large part because it's the song that Van Morrison closed his sets with in live performance for years and years and years. It became a trademark. I think it's also indicative of the album. People read endlessly into the lyrics and ponder the meaning. At various points, Van has said simply, Astral Weeks, I quote, are little poetic stories I made up on the spot. Mm -hmm. We we can accept that or we can think, no, something as complex as this song Cypress Avenue has got to be more to it. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle. It's a complicated song. Uh, as you said, you know, you can read that it was this place in Belfast that, that he couldn't get to where the muckety-mucks live, or he is... An older man in this song watching a 14-year-old girl stroll down the street. Yeah. Is this a Lolita kind of situation where he's experiencing a lust he shouldn't have? Is it him as an older man looking back on the past that he did have and the joys that he had? Is it the past he wished he had? Yeah. I mean, you don't really know. Before we play this song, I want to put it in context of the great rock critic Lester Bangs. You know, Lester was known for championing heavy metal and punk rock and really being the voice of, of those two musics. And as his biographer, one of the things I found fascinating was that when he contributed to a wonderful book came out in the early 80s called Stranded, where some of the great pioneering rock critics were asked to write about the one album they loved most, he chose Astral Weeks. Lester, like Van, had a mom who was a Jehovah's Witness and struggled with the concept of where you find transcendence in life. And he found the answer in two extreme poles, White Light, White Heat by the Velvet Underground, which came out in 68, and this album, which came out in 68. What Lester wrote was that Astral Weeks deals not in facts but in truths. Insofar as it can be pinned down, it is a record about people stunned by life, completely overwhelmed, stalled in their skins, their ages, and their selves, paralyzed by the enormity of what, in one moment of vision, they can comprehend. Think about that, or this old man sitting in a car on Cypress Avenue watching the 14-year-old girl. Here it is on Sound Opinions. Well, I'm caught one more time up on Cypress Avenue I call one more time up on 
Cypress Avenue And I'm conquered in a car seat Nothing that I can do I may go crazy Before that mansion on the hill I may go crazy Before that mansion on the hill But my heart keeps beating faster Yeah, my feet can't keep still And how the little girl drops something One way back home from school And how the little girl drops something On the way back home from school That is Cypress Avenue by the great Van Morrison from his 1968 album, Astral Weeks. We're doing a classic album dissection of this disc. Greg, where does the record go from here? Jim, that's a great question. I think people have been trying to answer that question ever since. (laughs) I mean, Van never has explicitly stated what this album is about, and people draw their own feelings out of it. But what's clear to me is I think this album is, above all, an album about feeling very deeply about something, about life. And I think it's those extremes in feeling that make life worth living and also produce that unbearable pain that you hear in Cypress Avenue. And later on in a song like Madame George, where he's basically talking about this drag queen with an incredible amount of empathy and insight. It's this nine-minute song, and he's talking about the, the boys coming around to the drag queen's house to party and drink and dance. And then when the, when the music ends and the booze runs out, they all leave, and there's the drag queen lonely again by yep. herself. And he's overwhelmed by this sight. Like, th- this person will never find true happiness in this world. There will always be these momentary bursts of happiness, and then it, it all falls apart, and you're left with yourself, and you're just completely lonely and, and devastated. It's very understandable why this record didn't become a huge commercial hit. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, people didn't understand what it was about. They didn't understand the music. But as you listen to the music now, it's incredibly powerful and incredibly well played. It ends on a note of just total devastation. There's a song called Slim Slow Slider, 
which ends the record. And Davis's bass playing, which we've extolled throughout the last few minutes here, talking about how he's the lead voice on this on this record as much as Van Morrison's own voice is, suddenly becomes incredibly agitated, and you, and you hear everything falling apart, and then boom, it's like fade to black. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like that Sopranos episode. It just like it just ends. <laughs> Every time I see you. I just don't know what to do Or does it, though? People would say concept album, Van. What was your idea of making the concept album? And he always said, no, song cycle, mm-hmm. which means that it starts over again. You know, it's life, death, rebirth, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know if that ends it there, Greg. I mean, that's just where the vinyl ended back in the vinyl day. But if you have your CD player on repeat or your iPod shuffle, right? It's a big issue, Jim. Uh, you know, he talks about being reborn again at the start of the album. He talks about death at the very end of it. And you're absolutely right. What is exactly does that mean? Is it a spiritual death, a physical death? Do we have to experience a little death in ourselves in order to live life to its fullest? There's a, there's a lot of possible meanings here. But what it is, again, it goes back to that deep, deep feeling. And the only way to live life is to live it in these extremes. And I think it's no wonder that he really never went back to this place again because it, it is sort of a torturous journey. You can hear it in Cypress Avenue. You can hear it in Madame George. Mm-hmm. Do we really want to experience that level of pain and sadness? No, we don't traditionally. But when you're a 23-year-old man with your whole life spread in front of you, you want to test those limits. And that's exactly what Van Morrison was doing in Astral Weeks. And that's why it's an amazing record that people still want to hear. Well, that ends our discussion of Astral Weeks, but obviously there's plenty more to be said about this album. If you want to chime in, give us a comment or a call, 888-859-1800, or email us at interact at soundopinions.org. Coming up after a short break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ and PRX, Jim and I will review the new album from breakout New Zealand artist Lord. Then I'll remember rock legend Lou Reed.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and that's a track called Tennis Court from the album Pure Heroin by an artist named Ella Maria Lonnie Yelich O'Connor, otherwise known as Lord, L-O-R-D-E. She turned 17 on November 7th, a New Zealand artist. Her mother's a renowned poet, Sonia Yelich. Her father's a civil engineer, signed to a major record deal when she was 14. Debut EP came out in 2012 and included a song called Royals, which you may have heard a thing or two about in the last year. It was number one in her native country. Then it made her the first female artist in 17 years to top the Alternative Songs chart, and now it's number one on the Billboard Pop chart in America. The album to accompany the single is out as well. It's called Pure Heroin. We're going to review it in a second, but let's hear that number one song first. Royals from Lord on Sound Opinions. And we'll never be From Lord on Sound Opinions, the album is called Pure Heroin. I should note that it's spelled H-E-R-O-I-N-E. And a pure heroine uh, this young woman is, Greg. A lot of critics have been comparing her to Lana Del Rey and Grimes. I think that's way off the bat, both musically and lyrically. If any comparison has to be made, I think there's a little bit of Bat for Lashes goth pop crossed with Lily Allen's sarcasm and a production that, to me, is a resonant of Laurie Anderson. What do I mean? Working with this producer, Joel Little, and it's just her and him, they build these tracks out of the most minimal of ingredients. It's just a thumping bass drum. It's some finger snap percussion, a little cowbell, a droning synthesizer, and her voice. The voice is always front and center. More importantly, I think the lyrics are really astounding from such a young talent. She is sort of a distaff Holden Caulfield, if you will. She's she's an existential 
existentialist. She is talking about being here now and living in the moment and trying to find community among like-minded souls who are not obsessed with materialism, with, you know, the self-obsessive sharing of the Twitter and Internet and Facebook generation. She's trying to find something real. Only occasionally does she seem like your average 16 or 17-year-old, like when she keeps telling us how bored she is. And I don't think it's so much being bored with her neighborhood and her friends and her surroundings and her family as it is bored with pop culture as it exists. Nevertheless, she says she loves hip-hop, and in live performances, she's covering both The Replacements and Kanye West. Show me another artist who has that kind of a range. I love the voice. I love the lyrics. I love the music. This album is extraordinary. It's brilliant, in my opinion. One of my favorites of the year. It's definitely a buy-it, and if you have anybody in your life who is 16 and 17 and female, buy two copies because she needs one, too. <laughs> I think you're a little smitten with the lyrics here, Jim. Existentialist, Holden Caulfield, I don't think she's quite at that category yet. I hear somebody who is very self-consciously uh, literary. She wants to be poetic. I'm not sure she's a poet yet. She wants to be taken very seriously. You know, the record could have used a little bit of sense of humor. Otherwise, I'm pretty excited about this artist. I mean, I, lo- I love the vocal approach that's sort of deadpan, cool, distant but skeptical, smart. There's potential here to be an outstanding lyricist. I don't think she's quite there yet. That song, Royals, as much as I like it, you know, she's ticking off all these brand names. So she's writing a hit song, criticizing materialism by name-dropping the very thing she's criticizing. I think that's a great trick. Okay, you know, you well, know, the, and, and, you know, despite me being an English professor and all, when do you hear me go on about lyrics You're like not this? a little bit skeptical about the fact that this is a very clever pop construct that's going on here, and it's very by well done. By a 16-year-old. Well, well, she's also got a 30-year-old producer named Joel Little. This record is not referencing Laurie Anderson. It is referencing contemporary hip-hop. Those electro beats... That big, billowy bass line, I don't think it's the record to die for, but I I think this is a very promising start. I'm really curious to see what she does on records two, three, and four. For now, I'm going to give it a burn it rating. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible on this show, we like to take a trip to the Desert Island jukebox and pop a quarter to play a song we cannot live without. Jim, what do you got for us? Greg, there's no way we can't deal with the death of Lou Reed this week. He is an artist, I think, in rock and roll for both of us who meant more than any other. And I think we'll do a much more in-depth Sound Opinions episode down the road. But we just learned on Sunday, October 27th, that Lou Reed is dead at the age of 71 from complications from a liver transplant he had undergone a few months earlier. He's been in the news everywhere. Why did he mean so much to the two of us? And why are people covering this artist who, after all, never sold what the Beatles or the Stones or Dylan sold? It has been said that though the Velvet Underground did not sell a lot of records, everyone who bought one went out and started a band. Lester Bangs, my rock critic hero, put it as all modern music begins with the Velvet Underground. 
punk rock, the raw, aggressive, stripped-down reconnection to the primal roots of rock and roll, well, that starts with the Velvet Underground. So does noise rock. Bands like Sonic Youth and the avant-garde experimentation of the most uh, inventive kind of freeform jazz coupled with rock and roll. Glam rock, Lou, of course, experimented with different ways to present himself on stage, but also a sound that I don't think has been mentioned much, and here's where I want to highlight in my Desert Island Jukebox, an element of the Velvet Underground called slowcore. This stripping down of rock and roll to its quietest, most basic, most tender and intimate form. We see it in bands like Galaxy 500 and in Low, in Mazzy Star, in Sparkle Horse. It's a genre that all stems from the third album by the Velvet Underground, the self-titled one, simply the Velvet Underground or Velvet Underground 3, some people call it. There's two things that are fascinating here. The really quiet and beautiful, I mean gorgeous melodies. And, you know, he could be a difficult and cantankerous man, but here on Velvet Underground 3 and on many other songs throughout his career, he, as Lester Bangs again said, showed compassion for people about whom almost no one else cared. When he was writing about heroin addicts or people struggling with alcoholism, when he was writing about homosexuals tortured that they could not be themselves, when he was writing about transsexuals, people who felt that they were trapped in the body of the opposite sex, and he was telling their stories and doing it with deep empathy and an incredible emotion. I'm going to play the song Candy Says from the third album by the Velvet Underground. It's about Candy Darling, who is one of those Warhol factory superstars. Candy Darling was a transsexual. What were the emotions like? Lou Reed wasn't writing from a a superficial curiosity. He was writing about what was this like? Candy says that I've come to hate my body and all that it requires in this world. And he goes on to really portray her as a hero. Who was doing this in 1968? Nobody. I mean, this is radical turf even today. The sympathy that he shows, the support, the love. It's not a word, again, that we associate often with Lou Reed, but it's obvious in this song. It's a beautiful, beautiful song that has been hugely influential musically and that I think is incredibly powerful lyrically. This is the sort of thing that people are talking about when they're saying that we have lost one of the avatars of all time in rock and roll. Candy Says by Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground on Sound Opinions. Candy Says I'd like to know completely What all the so discreetly talk about I'm going to watch the bluebirds fly Over my shoulder I'm going to watch pass me Oh, 
Candy Says by Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground from their third album, 1968, in memory of Lou Reed, dead at the age of 71. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have a live appearance by a band that's made one of the best albums of the year, Parquet Courts. As always, Greg, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, Anthony Martinez, and our intern, Jake Smith. And a news note on the way out. The Last Waltz made its premiere this week in 1977, of course featuring Van Morrison, and you're still trying to dress the way he did in that movie. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hi, guys. Uh, This is John in Indiana. I really enjoyed your Halloween show this year. It was a really nice mixture of songs. Your discussion of Stagger Lee really grabbed my attention. It got me thinking about other versions I've heard, including The Clash's Wrong and Boyo from London Calling. Billy Boy has been shot. It got me thinking, maybe, I know you do classic album dissections from time to time, maybe it's time for a classic song dissection. Maybe I'm the only one, but I'd really like to hear it. Thanks for the great shows. Keep it up. Bye. Hi, this is Sandra Hugis from Promise City, Iowa, a little dinky town out in the middle of nowhere. And my favorite murder thing, actually in real life, the lady got acquitted, but the Chad Mitchell Trio back in 1961 on the Mighty Day on Campus album introduced the exciting topic of the hatchet murders in Massachusetts. And Chad said, Elizabeth Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. And when the job was nicely done, she gave her father 41 and went on to this really wild set of circumstances. Yesterday in Old Fall River, Mr. Andrew Borden died, and he got his daughter Lizzie on a charge of homicide. Some folks say she didn't do it, and others say of course she did. They all agree Miss Lizzie B was a problem kind of kid. Cause you can't chop your papa up in Massachusetts, not even if his plan is a surprise. A surprise! No, you can't chop your papa up in Massachusetts, you know how neighbors love to criticize. And that's my favorite murder ballad. Thank you. Bye-bye. Lizzie kind of rearranged him with a hatchet, so they say. Then she got her mother in that same old-fashioned way. But you can't stop your mama. Hey, Jim and Greg. Heather calling from Seacoast, New Hampshire. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your interview with Nico Case. I was really excited when her latest album came out and I brought it home and I listened to it and I thought, wow, she's really angry. And then I didn't listen to it anymore. And I heard your interview with her yesterday and I thought, you know what? She is angry. This is like her own breakup album. And I listened to it again 
and without understanding, I love it. And in fact, I love it so much, I'm going to see her this weekend in Boston. So thank you for the great interview, and thank you, Nico Case, for writing such awesome, raw work. Hi, Greg, Jim. This is Peter from Oak Park, Illinois. As it probably didn't escape your attention, uh, Lou Reed passed away on last Sunday. I am, like many, someone who listened to the Velvets during my formative years, even though for me that was decades after their existence, and I'm left a little numb by his passing. I remember years ago that uh, Jim, I believe, selected, and I heard her call my name for an episode featuring the uh, best guitar solos of all time. If I could be so forward, I'd like to suggest that song for whoever is selecting the Desert Island pick for this week. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.